0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: If you went back 50 years and looked at what zoos were like, we'd all be horrified. And I have a sense that whoever sits in this chair in 50 years time will look back on what I did and be horrified at who I was and what I've done. You know, history has a way of catching us like that. I think our fascination with animals will never go away. I think right now it's hard to see a future where our threats to animals have become under control to the point that we are not needed. I think that zoos will be different from what we are now, but I still think they will exist.
0: So, you might be like me and have grown up reading Gerald Durrell and loved it, and at the same time be really disturbed, as a nature lover, at seeing contained animals or stressed animals, seeing animals in zoos. And like me, you might be wondering how it works that zoos, historically based quite literally on colonial domination, how they are now positioning themselves as essential to saving species from human-caused extinction. Yep, we've got a lot to talk about. Welcome to Off Track, I'm Anne Jones. uh, It's impossible to say how many zoos, aquariums and animal attractions there are in the world, but of the really big, famous ones, the ones that are members of the World Association of Zoos and Aquariums, there are about 400. Dr Jenny Gray is the CEO of Zoos Victoria and is the immediate past president of the association. And she has a PhD that specifically deals with some of these curlier questions about zoos. So, first of all, Who is it that owns the animals in zoos? That's such an interesting question because it's not really that simple.
1: So there's many different ownership models. By far the most obvious one would be that the institution holding the animals is the one that owns them. But there are many endangered creatures like something like a Tasmanian devil is owned by the government of tasmania and they loan them to facilities or they work in conjunction with us on a threatened species program so you could have animals that are loaned from a government or from one institution to another on what's called a breeding loan or even just a display loan and then you get some animals that are privately owned and leased out to people so all kinds of different options big reputable zoos and aquariums we tend to not put any value on the animals we hold them as custodians and as in a kind of stewardship role and we move them where they're best placed in terms of breeding programs where they're best needed and so we don't see them as an asset we see them more as a critical part of preserving a population of animals
0: uh, and by value you mean an economic value you don't
1: put a dollar sign on them We don't. We don't trade in animals. We don't buy and sell animals.
0: Of course, this applies to the types of zoos that Jenny Gray works in, the top tier, well-established zoos, many of which have long colonial histories. They started as real curiosities, sometimes
1: as scientific endeavours, but very much around this enormous curiosity we had in the natural world as colonies started being established explorers would go out and find these incredible creatures often zoos were the playground of rich kings princes people like that they would start up a collection of animals and and it was almost a power if you were a prince in india you would send a tiger to the royalty in england as part of an interaction and then when it got to england then the king would have to do something with it and so hence Zoos became places that would hold these gifts and then make them available for the general public to have a look at. And then over time, we started to become much more rigorous, permanently sighted locations with animals in them, looking at science, looking at education, not just entertaining the public, but starting to educate the public as well. And then the next step forward became, as we became people who had that science and knowledge and had that great passion for animals, realizing how much trouble different species were in and becoming more and more serious players in conservation. So that putted history is a journey of one from curiosity through to being sites of entertainment, through to being really robust scientific and, and conservation entities.
0: How do you assess the welfare of all of the different creatures that are under your care? So here at Zoos Victoria, we do an
1: assessment of every single animal that lives with us. Um, We have about 20 different indicators that are good indicators of what we call the five domains of animal welfare. And so those look at their physical well-being, nutrition, behavioral, um, and all of this leading towards and, and their environmental well-being leading towards what could be a good mental state for the animal. And so we will go out with our vets and our keepers and assess enclosure by enclosure, how are all the animals doing? Then we're able to put in place plans that can help them do even better. So we have a high bar in terms of what we want to see. And we're constantly striving to improve that. Across all the zoos and aquariums in Australia, they also do a self-assessment of the welfare of the animals in their zoos. So Australia is really leading the way for zoos and aquariums in terms of Thinking about animal welfare and how we can do it really well.
0: Why do you think that is? Why is Australia
1: leading the pack? I think Australian zoos are well equipped to do this because we are often government institutions. We're also fairly well funded, and we're in a society that really does value um, the well-being of animals. So there is an, an interest and a concern that is is definitely at play in Australia as well as, I would say, the quality of our staff is just exceptional. We have so many graduates working for us in the animal care and and looking after animals, so we do have highly skilled workforces that are able to apply their minds to animal welfare.
0: You have a book based on your PhD called Zoo Ethics – The Challenges of Compassionate Conservation and in it you wrote about animal welfare being measured not by apparent happiness or of a life free of fear, but rather the extent to which an animal can cope in its environment. Can you explain that a little bit more?
1: Yeah, I think when we think of well-being, and I think this holds true for people and for animals, it's not just that you're well in isolation we often find our well-being is compromised by the environments within which we find ourselves or times of great stress or times of great danger these are things that erode us and er give us a feeling of being stressed and and then that manifests in numbers of different ways and so for animal in a zoo the question is is this environment conducive to them having a good life Are there things that make them stressed and can we reduce those? And those stress will manifest in a number of different ways. So for some animals, stress will manifest in lethargy. They'll just sit in a corner or not do anything. For others, they may pace up and down. Others, again, will be cowering in a corner. And so while we can't ask this animal, how are you going, like we can ask a person, what we can do is stop and look at some of these behaviors and see how the animal's coping with the environment that it finds itself in. And these environments can be very different. You know, if you go to Werribee Open Range Zoo where the lower savanna experience is about a 20 hectare site, the animals are moving around as they would in the wild. You almost don't see any stress behaviors there because if they don't like something, they just move away. If you've got an animal in a really small space where it can't get away, it can't get to its comfortable flight distance, then you'll start to see stress and you'll start to see indicators of poor well being. So that's where you don't necessarily want to see all the wild behavior. So, a great one is fear. You know, many wild animals are absolutely fearful of humans. That would be terrible if we kept them all fearful, but they lived their life out in the zoo it's important that they have positive experiences with people so that they lose that fear of humans. Obviously, if we were releasing them to the wild, we wouldn't want that as an outcome, but that's the kind of thing that we're looking at that we don't need to keep fear as part of their repertoire, even though they would have it in the wild. Often there's little things you can do. And so with a number of years under the belt, there's often fairly simple things you can do that start to give animals more choice and control. And so for example, if you see an animal standing next to a door, obviously looking anxious, just open the door. Let them have free access. Once they have control over whether they're inside or outside, they'll generally be outside. But when you feel you have to control every aspect of their life, you often then end up creating animals with some stress behaviors. So I've been to zoos all around the world. I um, have assessed using our assessment and I give them feedback. I'm not sure they always love it, but if we can walk around a zoo and assess how the animals look in that enclosure, and it's been quite remarkable. Sometimes I'm in poor countries with zoos that don't have a lot of resources, and I've seen exceptional animal welfare, really good, and I've been in rich zoos where I've seen appalling animal welfare, and then what I do is I write letters, which take me a long time to write, and it takes my colleagues a long time to write back, but they change and for me one breakthrough was a fairly rich zoo that had some very bad welfare the letter i wrote upset them quite a bit apparently but the next time i interacted they'd appointed an animal welfare officer and they were systemically addressing their problems and making them better and so i think we all must do what we can each and every step of the way
0: there did seem to be an irony that the common factor of the best zoos in the world has nothing to do with the animals. It's all to do with the people, the people that work there and apply all of their effort towards the welfare of the animals.
1: And I think have that, that sense of ethics, that sense of discomfort of are we doing enough? And I think the moment you think you've done enough, you should be looking around for what's next because we can always do better. And, and so we are driven by that. And, and I think the investment in people, we're now working with a number of sister zoos around the world. It's incredible to see how they grasp the learnings and how much they can move forward when they're just given a little bit of help and support. And we've been absolutely thrilled. The Port Moresby Nature Park in, in the middle of Port Moresby, um, an incredible little zoo. And they have achieved the Australian accreditation standard which is the highest standard in the world and that's the work of an incredible team of people in Port Moresby that just set out to keep making their zoo better and better.
0: That doesn't mean that just any animal can be successfully kept in a zoo and there's one in particular that has a reputation for thwarting every attempt at being a part of a zoo collection. The, the Cape
1: Clawless Otter has a wildness in it, that, and, and they're very flexible, feisty little animals. They're, they're actually quite sizable. They're about the size of a mid-sized dog. And in any zoo I've been to, they all go, oh, so hard, because these guys work out ways to climb, to dig. Um, at a zoo that I worked at previously, the Johannesburg Zoo, we had a Cape Clawless Otter moved it into a new enclosure, it was clearly very happy there, it was in there every day. And then we realized that we were missing ducks off the local, the little lake nearby, the, the duck population was going down, and when we had a closer look there were telltale evidence of feathers in the Otter enclosure. And in another good look, what we found was there were little footprints up the wall on one side and down the wall on the other. Um, And he was going out at night and finding his own food and then bringing it back to his enclosure. So clearly quite happy living in the zoo, very happy with the, the food and the accommodation, but quite liked just going out and doing whatever he wanted. And so there are some animals like that, that no matter what you build and how you put it together, they find ways around it. And sometimes that's okay, but sometimes that should make us stop and think, can we really offer a good home you, you know, that that's just an extreme example of it. Over, you know, the, the hundred and, well, what do you say, 250 years that, that we've had zoos, there's some animals that zoos learned very quickly they were unable to hold. And and so you don't see them, you know, m- most zoos around the world will have a kind of fairly similar group of animals because we do trade and breed amongst each other and work with that population, but also because they generally the animals that do better in zoos.
0: And that small group breeding expertise, you know, handling stud books of a small captive population of animals, zoo's expertise in this area is one of the things that has come in extremely handy as more and more species crash towards extinction.
1: We were asked in 2009 to be part of a rescue mission for Christmas Island Pipistrel, which is a very little bat that lived on Christmas Island. The threat there was an invasive ant species called crazy yellow ants. And basically the scientists had seen that the number of bats were reducing every year. So wonderful scientists like Lindy Lumsden would go up there, record how many bats there were, and every year she plotted this number going down. And you could see we were going to have a problem in 2009. We put a team on the ground, which eventually the the government said, yes, let's put a team in to rescue these bats. And and that arrived in August 2009. They measured bats for five or six days and they only could see one bat flying and then never heard it again. And that was we had 500 recording devices right across the known territory. So we literally arrived in time to, to measure an extinction event. And we carry that sound around. I actually have it on my phone and I use it in talks because for us at Zoos Victoria, it was that wake up moment of, are we now an organization people will phone when animals are going extinct? And that's not what we want to be. We want to be active well before that. And so our scientists went back out and we asked the question. Our board was very brave and made the promise that no Victorian terrestrial vertebrate species will go extinct on our watch and we sent our scientists out and said, well, tell us what that looks like. The first pass gave us 16 Victorian species right on the brink of extinction that we could lose in a five to 10 year window. We've added more. So we're now currently working with 23 Victorian species and four Southern Australian species. They're not strictly speaking Victorian. All of which, if we did nothing, we could reasonably lose within the next 10 years. The exciting thing is we've also shown that we can turn that around and so for something like the Eastern Barred Bandicoot, our interventions over the last decade working with incredible partners, we now have gone from zero in the wild to 1500 in the wild and those numbers are growing all the time because these guys are just doing so great out there. So for us, that's what made us really heavy combined with discussions I was having with colleagues around the world that said if every zoo and aquarium just got serious about the animals in their own backyard, we would cover half the world. And so instead of worrying about what people are doing somewhere else with their animals, let's worry about what we're doing with our animals and talk to our community about what we can change to make sure they have a future.
0: What's the fail-safe mechanism in this though? Because the truth is, is that zoos like Melbourne Zoo, especially the main site, you know, are founded in colonialism and have some, you know, dubious pasts. And obviously that's a while ago now. But what are the mechanisms that we have to ensure that zoos like Zoos Vic or any of the zoos that are involved in conservation are acting ethically and in the best interests of the animals? So we
1: have a number of of governance and oversight elements. We have a science advisory committee and an animal ethics committee that both look over the governance of, of what we say we're doing. For every species in Australia that is critically endangered, there's a recovery team or some such organization which is made up of scientists, government officials, people who are really interested and involved in the environment these animals come from and we often form a part of one of those committees those committees set up the plans for what it takes to recover a species so you know it's not as easy as thinking i'd like to save the helmeted honey eater i'll just rush out and grab some there is an incredibly rigorous permitting system before you remove animals from the wild The government in australia is really clear that you can never take all the animals from the wild so there are strict limits put on how many you can collect when you have a permit to do that and you can't just put them back so having collected up your animal you breed it well for two seasons can you just put it back no again there's translocation processes you have to go through incredibly rigorous in terms of disease testing you know what you don't want to do is suddenly introduce a novel disease into a population that's already endangered and then make it even worse than where you started. So there is nothing easy about helping save species. In fact, this is the hardest work we've ever done.
0: But could it be, though, that zoos with sort of all of the the swish PR and, and excellent storytelling and the feel-good messages give a sense of control or make visitors think that actually there is a band-aid over the collapse of our environment?
1: I'd hope not. And um, I I think if anything, we're always trying to walk that gentle balance between we don't want to leave you with a sense of, it's okay, we've got this. We certainly don't. Um, It's very much a team effort, but we also don't want to leave you feeling helpless and that there's no point doing anything because it's all too big and too hard. So we want people to leave somewhere in that sweet spot of feeling that something needs to be done now And I'm empowered to do something about it. Um, But yeah, it's tricky, tricky space and a tricky line to walk.
0: So where do you see zoos being in the future, say 50 or 100 years from now?
1: I think where I'm seeing a big trend at the moment is that zoos are starting to stand up next to big conservation organisations. I would see In 50 years time, when we think about conservation, we'll be thinking about zoos and aquariums and we'll be putting them next to WWF or the Wildlife Conservancy because we'll see that we each play a slightly different role. We also are custodians of knowledge, of education, of engaging with community in ways that many other organizations grapple to do. And I think another piece of what we'll see developing is zoos as first responders in times of emergency. We saw through the fires of 2020 that when you need a wildlife vet, actually you call the zoos. Now that was a huge wake up call for us. So we are strengthening our capacity to respond in times of emergency because we know we're going to have more of those.
0: You write that zoos are attempting to save endangered animals, but that in the end, it may actually be endangered animals that save zoos. Can you explain what you meant by that?
1: So zoos have changed and they'll keep changing. As we understand the scale of the threats to animals, we're dealing with more and more endangered animals. If I looked at when I started working in zoos 20 years ago, You would have said 20% of the animals in our collection or the species that we're working with are endangered. Now we would say 50 or 60, not because we've changed the animals, but because more and more animals are tipping into the endangered basket. In my best wish is a world in which you don't need the kind of conservation work we do because animal populations are thriving and succeeding in the wild.
0: Unfortunately, that's just not the world we're living in. In a sense, then, modern-day, well-run zoos are getting their social licence for being from being involved with conservation. But if that's the case, then isn't there an argument that says that if an animal is not on the threatened list, if it's secure in the wild, then why are they in the zoo? What's the rationalisation? So
1: for some of them, it may be for their benefit as animals that were bred and raised in zoos, that they're quite comfortable living here. Zoos do bring out some fairly emotive arguments, but I think there are, as long as the animals are having good welfare, they're in a good home, they're well looked after, there's an argument that they're then playing a role as an ambassador. They're playing a role in education, in engaging and getting people and children in particular to care about the future of these animals creatures like seagulls and cockroaches will do well regardless. But lions are in trouble, giraffe are in trouble. There's so many species that are in trouble now that I, I don't see the argument can be made that there's any species we should say, no, we shouldn't have a backup. We shouldn't have zoos and, and aquariums working to understand, to protect and to grow our knowledge of animals. All day, every day, we do things that impact animals. How you lay out your garden, uh, what pesticides you use, these have impacts on how you kill insects within your house. And so, yeah, if it can just have people pause for a moment and think a little bit more deeply about animals and what they need us to be as
0: partners and neighbors and cohabitants on this little planet. Dr Jenny Gray is the CEO of Zoos Victoria and the author of Zoo Ethics, The Challenges of Compassionate Conservation. And really, we didn't even scratch the surface of the curly issues around zoos or our relationship with the wild. But that's why Off Track will be back next week to take us into the wild. I'm Ann Jones, and next time, I'll take you somewhere else.